May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Please sit. We continue today in Matthew with yet another parable. If it feels like we've been doing parables forever, that's because we've been doing parables forever. And I want to tell you, I feel like I need to confess that for me, preparing for this sermon today was really hard. Because it feels to me like we have enough violence in the world, enough retribution, enough sadness. And like all of you, I have been watching the news this week and seeing the atrocities in the Middle East. And I said to Lynn a few days ago, all sort of teary and upset, that I still sometimes can't quite believe that we live in a world where these things are possible, that in the year of our Lord 2023, we still live in a world where people can be this cruel and violent, especially towards children. It just blows my mind. Now, like you, I I know it happens logically. I live here. I, I see it. I've experienced some of it myself. I know that it's real. But when things like this happen, I find myself sort of saying to God, how much longer? How much longer? How is it possible for us now, after all this time, to still live in a world where we value human life so little? And like you, I have no answers for that. And no answers for the complicated situation in the Middle East. I wrote to you in the middle of the week lamenting that this conflict continues to rage on, this conflict that begins really in our scripture with Jacob and Esau. And it's a conflict that continues again now to take lives on both sides of the borders. And it has touched a painful nerve in this town with our Jewish siblings and with many others across the world. And so I came to this gospel, this parable, and I struggled. Because this parable from Jesus would be hard on a good day, and it's harder today. Now remember that when we find Jesus in this part of Matthew, he is having a final conflict with the religious elites, the priests, the scribes in Jerusalem. We begin to near the end of his public ministry now, and his quarrel with them and theirs with him is coming to a head. So this parable functions as a piece of that ongoing conflict and as a piece of the plot that moves us toward the cross. Its form is very like the parable that we heard last week. And I'm going to walk through that a little bit because it's important in the larger point that I'm going to try to make. The vineyard owner in the parable that we heard last week sends servants who are mistreated and killed and stoned. The king in this parable sends servants who are ignored. Then, last week, the vineyard owner sends a second round of servants who are treated again the same way. The king sends a second round of servants who are mistreated and killed. Now, here's where it gets interesting. In the parable of the vineyard, the vineyard owner sends his son to collect the rent, to collect what is due to be paid to him. That's the story we heard last week. And of course, they kill his son. And they think they'll take the goods for themselves. They'll, you know, they'll use the land to produce for, the, for themselves. And this is obviously a foreshadowing of Jesus, who's about to be killed by the Romans and by the religious elites. 
God sends Jesus, and he's killed. And Jesus asks them, then, in the midst of this conversation, he asks the Pharisees and the priests, in telling this parable, he says, when the vineyard owner comes, what do you think he will do to those workers? And the chief priests and the Pharisees responded to him and said, he will kill the workers and lease to someone else who will give him his rent. In other words, the priests and the Pharisees, they respond to Jesus and they suggest that the correct response is death. Death and replacement. This is the decision of the priests and the Pharisees in the, in the parable from last week. That the correct response is revenge and retribution. But the thing is, in this conversation in scripture, Jesus never actually agrees to that. Instead, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I'm not totally sure I'm going to get through this today, so be patient with me. In the parable we have today, there is also revenge and murder and the burning of a town. And then even when the wedding banquet is open to everyone, the king is upset that someone has been let in who isn't dressed properly. And so he's bound hand and foot and tossed into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Any questions why I was struggling with this parable? Particularly in the world that we're in in this moment. But here's the thing. When we come to a text like this that we struggle with, that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't sound like Jesus, sometimes what we have to do is fight with it wrestle with it, contend with it. And so that's what I did all week. And then finally, I consulted somebody whose Greek is better than mine. Praise God for people whose Greek are better than mine. And discovered some interesting possibilities where we might pull a little bit differently. Remember that this is a conversation back and forth between Jesus and the chief priests. And the Greek here is a little ambiguous. It could also be translated, the kingdom of heaven has been likened to. The kingdom of heaven has been likened to. Instead of, the kingdom, what may the kingdom of heaven be compared to? Those are two very different phrases. So what if what Jesus is doing is responding to what he heard from the, from the priests and the chief, the chief priests and the Pharisees? What if this whole parable is a response back to them. And what he's saying is, you have likened the kingdom of heaven to this image, this, this violent image. This is what you subscribe to, that you are teaching people about. Where if you don't do what, where if they don't do what you tell them to do, <laughs> thank you. I'm not sure that'll help, but I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. I also have cough drops. I'm eating like candy. Um, if they don't do it the way that you tell them to do, if they aren't fully prepared, if they come to the party late, if they aren't dressed the way that they're supposed to be dressed, then you will have no compassion on them. And you have misunderstood the kingdom. You have assumed that if you have no compassion, then God will have no compassion. What if Jesus is offering them this mirror image of what the parable looks like instead of describing the kingdom. Because every other place he describes the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew looks 
remarkably different, including the story we heard two weeks ago, where lots of people get upset because folks come, they work for an hour, and they get paid just as much as the people who worked all day long, right? That sounds more like the frustrating abundance of God, not what we hear today. So what if, what if Jesus is offering them this image? Now, I feel like I have to tell you how this is normally interpreted, so we're going to do that quickly. Usually, this parable is interpreted this way. God sent the prophets to invite everyone to the party. But everyone was distracted with their lives and the things that they wanted in the world, so they didn't go, even if they should have. God gets angry, sends Jesus and Jesus' disciples to invite new people to the party, and that's a place to stop, right? God is angry and then sends and decides to offer another opportunity. Okay, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but we'll keep going. Jesus invites new people to the party, and they come. Hooray, that's fantastic. But then this guy, this poor schmuck, as one of the commentaries calls him, doesn't have the appropriate garment. Silly, silly man. So they bind him and they throw him into the outer darkness. And that, of course, is supposed to remind us of the cost of discipleship. That if you show up and you say you want to be part of the party, you have to bring all of yourself and you have to be willing to make sacrifices. You have to be willing to really opt in, to put on the garments, to join the party. Which sounds like a logical interpretation, I guess, but there are a couple of big problems with it, and we're only going to look at two of them. The first one is this lovely image of God who gets angry and burns a town and kills a whole bunch of people. I don't know about you, but that's not quite the God that I know. So we're going to do a very quick quick lesson in bad theology. There are lots of stories in Hebrew scripture that might align with an interpretation like that. If you've spent time in Hebrew scripture, you know it's true. You can start just at the beginning with Noah and the flood. God gets very angry. Things happen. But if you've spent time trying to grapple with that, you eventually come to terms with the fact that the God that we meet in Hebrew scriptures and the God that we meet in the New Testament is the same And what doesn't change is God. What does change is our ability to understand the way that we tell the story, the way that we understand it, the lens that we look at. And of course, the lens that we see most clearly in is Jesus. And everything about who God is and who we are in relation to God and the world around us comes into focus when we use Jesus as this lens. And it becomes very clear to us very quickly that God never condones violence. God never condones death. Remember that Jesus himself chooses, rather than to raise a hand to those who are punishing and killing him unjustly, he chooses to go to the cross. So none of that really works about a God that is destructive. And here's the other. There is 100% a cost to discipleship. And I think we talk about that in this place all the time. It is true that God expects things of us, that we are expected to be good disciples, to show up, to offer our gifts, to to make sacrifices, to be part of the work, that our baptism opts us into work. And if we ignore it, that sort of creates a whole bunch of other problems. Instead, we're supposed to do good, good work in the church. We're supposed to give our time and our talent and our treasure and 
to build justice and equality and to live in to all of those promises we make at baptism. Being a Christian, following Jesus, it offers, it opts us into a whole life of work. But this last bit, where if you don't do it right, you get thrown out, doesn't really jive at all. Even with the parable we heard two weeks ago, right? About people who come late and they receive just as much payment as the people who worked all day long. The abundance of God's goodness and the abundance of God's kingdom doesn't go away simply because we're late or because we aren't dressed right or because we didn't accept the invitation the first time we received it or because we didn't do all the right things at all the right times. The kingdom of God, the kingdom that God is building in Jesus is remarkably different. And this is the only response that Jesus gives between the parable we heard last week and the parable we heard this week. That the kingdom will be built with the cornerstone that has been rejected. That will be the chief cornerstone. And Jesus says this to the the priests and the Pharisees in order to say, you missed it. You missed the boat. While you are so focused on these rules, while you are focused on the checkboxes and on how you can manipulate and move people forward, you have missed the story that is about love, the story that is about compassion. Now this morning, as we come to church, as the world is messy yet again, one of the things that I think this this parable and perhaps the openness to interpret it in a different way can invite us to do is to is to remember that not everything is black and white not everything is so cut and dry one of the stories that the world tells us is that everything is sort of already broken up it's either right or it's wrong it's black or it's white it's fixed or it's broken it's one or the other we're encouraged to believe that politics are always partisan that we always have to be intense and sort of at each other's throats. But at the end of the day, our faith should be able to encourage us to hold multiple things at the same time, to be open and flexible enough to believe that multiple loves, multiple conflicts can live within us at the same time, just like multiple interpretations of a story, none of which are perfect. And so today, I want to encourage you to hold multiple things to be true as we look at the world around us. It is true that in the last week, our siblings here in town and in this area have been hurt and they are asking us to stand next to them because they are hurt, because they are sad and because they are afraid about what has happened in Israel. That doesn't mean that as Christians, we can't also grieve lives lost on both sides, that we can't also hold leaders and politicians to account, that we can't also highlight this conflict that has raged over generations, that has cost so much blood and so much time. There is an opportunity tonight at Temple B'nai Haim for some prayer. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the service. And just yesterday, the Archbishop of Jerusalem, the Episcopal Archbishop, 
has designated October 17th, so Tuesday, a worldwide day of prayer and fasting. And he's calling for all Christians all over the world, no matter where you are on Tuesday, to pray together for peace in Jerusalem, for peace in the Middle East. And he's very clear in his letter that those prayers are for all people, especially innocent civilians and women and children, but for all people. And he urges a peaceful solution, of course, that offers all people security and safety. So on Tuesday, if you are here, we will begin the day in this space at 9.30 with morning prayer. And the space will be open until five o'clock so that you can come by any time you'd like during the day and offer your own prayers and feel connected to that great life of faith that is living all over the world where there will be Christians praying all day for peace in the Middle East. I want to invite you when you come to these texts that are difficult and violent to remember that it is okay to push on them and pull on them until you find Jesus in them. He is there, but sometimes we have to look for him a little bit harder. And more than anything, I want to invite you this week to love. This is the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. The builders, of course, were interested in power and privilege in a particular way of life that would construct the world in particular ways. But what we hear consistently in scripture is that God is not interested in that. God is always interested in love and this is the work that our baptism opts us into. And so even though it may feel far away and it may not feel like you're doing something concretely today that affects what's happening in the Middle East, I assure you that you are if you choose love. If you love generously, even extravagantly, even to the point that it feels wasteful with all of the people around you all of the time. Now that's hard. None of us can do that all the time. But that is the invitation. To be generous in every interaction that we have. To make room and to choose love. It is still the only thing that confronts the violence that we're seeing. And the good news of our gospel, even though it's hard to see it in the parable today, is that that love will always have the last word. We just aren't there yet. Amen.